Hi everybody, it's Tarek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 7th, 2021. Hello out there, and as always, thank you for stopping by to check out the podcast. Uh, If you're new to Foreign Exchanges and uh, you like this interview, please check out the newsletter, fx.substack.com. Consider signing up for uh, our free email list, and you'll receive more interviews like this and uh, plenty of writing about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, You could also consider becoming a paid subscriber and helping to support the newsletter. That would be great, but I don't want to rush. I don't want to rush you into anything. Come and sign up. It's no no cost to sign up and, uh, you know, see how you like it first. Uh, Again, uh, thanks to everybody for checking in, for uh, listening. I hope uh, you're all doing well, or as well as possible at least. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be welcoming to the program this week uh, Anel Schiline. Uh, Anel is uh, a uh, research fellow uh, at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, uh, focusing on the Middle East. She is also a non-resident fellow at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Uh, Her academic research focuses on sources of religious authority uh, in the Middle East. She's done field work uh, all over the place, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Yemen, Morocco, Jordan, Oman. Uh, Jordan is the one in particular. I'm sort of, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a flash forward here. Uh, Jordan's the one that that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, (laughs) But you may have seen her writing uh, in many places, uh, especially at the Quincy Institute's uh, responsible statecraft website, but she's been published uh, at Politico, Instinct Media, American Prospect, the American Conservative, the National Interest, the Nation, uh, all over the place. Really, foreign policy. She's got. Uh, she's she's uh, very in demand. Let's say so. We're very lucky to have her here, uh, and she's going to help us make some sense of what's been going on the past few days in Jordan. Uh, If you read Tuesday's uh, newsletter, uh, yesterday, I guess, yesterday's newsletter, uh, you will know that over the weekend, uh, the Jordanian, uh, a Jordanian prince, uh, Prince Hamza bin Hussein, uh, who was at one time the crown prince, he is no longer the crown prince, and that's, uh, that was something that that changed years ago. Uh, it has nothing to do with current events. Uh, but well, maybe nothing. Maybe we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, prince Hamza uh, released a recording to the BBC, a video recording, uh, stating that he had been placed under house arrest uh, around the same time that this video was breaking. Uh, Jordanian officials started to, talking about. Uh, an, an attempted coup that they had thwarted uh, with Prince Hamza at the center of it. He was uh, sort of the, uh, I don't know, I, I'm ringleader maybe the wrong term, but he was certainly the central figure. He was the man who was going to take over uh, for King Abdullah if this alleged coup plot had succeeded. Uh, and they've, they've thrown a number of people, uh, 20, I saw an article uh, a few days ago that said about 20, some fairly senior uh, former at least officials uh, in the Jordanian government, um, with ties to Prince Hamza, uh, that number has probably grown since then. Although uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly by how much. 
Um, the the discussion, you know, the the reporting on this kind of uh, uh, fixated on an alleged foreign angle that Prince Hamza was sort of uh, somehow involved with a foreign government, and we don't know the identity of that government. If it was only one, maybe more, maybe none. That's another thing we're going to get into. Um, and so, you know, it kind of took on this uh, this very sinister. Uh, kind of cast. Uh, since then, since the weekend, things have moved pretty rapidly. Uh, Prince Hamza has signed, uh, we're told, a letter in which he's pledged his allegiance to King Abdullah and the current Jordanian system. Uh, and it seems like, for him at least, that's the end of the road. Now, there are still these, uh, you know, many people in prison, uh, possibly not entirely for their roles uh, in this alleged plot. Um, and uh, so it's not over for them, but for Prince Hamza, it seems to be over. And we've seen just today uh, a couple of stories. Um, uh, Jordan's Deputy Prime Minister Ayman Safadi uh, told the Wall Street Journal in an interview that uh, the prince, the prince has uh, been contained and uh, the threat is under control. Uh, we've seen King Abdullah himself uh, finally make a public statement on all of this and assure everybody that the plot has ceased and there's no threat anymore. This is a little curious because it's all happening uh, just a day or so after the release of an audio recording, again, something we'll get into in the interview, that seems to undermine a pretty good <laughs> chunk of the story, specifically the foreign uh, entanglement part of it. Uh, so it's very murky. Uh, we don't really have a lot of independent information uh, or confirmation, as far as I can tell, uh, about the actual existence of this plot. What we're relying on mostly seems to be the word of the Jordanian government, uh, which you know we could uh, we could question. I think, um, and so I'm very happy to have Anel here uh, to kind of talk to us about uh, the background of this, the the the, the sort of um, context in which this supposed plot, and again, I think we have to be careful about uh, just sort of relying on what's been reported, uh, the, the context in which this has happened or supposedly has happened, uh, we'll talk a little bit about who Prince Hamza is, uh, and we will talk about sort of the myth or image, maybe myth is too strong, uh, but the image of Jordan, Jordanian stability, if you've followed any of the media coverage, uh, around this possible attempted coup, uh, you will see a lot of commentary about, uh, you know, how this is sort of upsetting Jordan's image as this very reliable, dependable, uh, stable country in the in the middle of a very uh, unstable region, a sort of island of stability. I I would argue that stability only goes. Uh, about an inch below the surface, but uh, we will uh, we'll cover that. Uh, we'll sort of get into that with Anel. So that's what's on the agenda. I think it will be a full conversation just to sort of unpack uh, the events of recent days and kind of put them in a, a national and then regional context. So uh, with that said, I'm going to uh, get Anel on the line and we'll start the interview. Okay, as I said in the intro, I'm being joined by Anel Schiline of the Quincy Institute and the Baker Institute. Uh, she has written a piece uh, on the latest happenings in Jordan. 
that uh, we'll get into a little bit later in the interview, but it's uh, titled Jordan's Detem- Detention of Coup Plotters uh, is really a crackdown on dissent. And uh, there are uh, quotes around coup plotters. So I think you can tell where we're, we're heading here. Um, and that's at responsiblestatecraft.org. I'll post a link to that in the show description. Um, Anel, thank you for coming on the program. It's really uh, nice to have you and, and sort of uh, have you help us uh, understand what's going on or what is allegedly going on in Jordan. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I, I thought I wanted to start with a little bit of uh background on, I guess, the two kind of main characters in all of this, uh, King Abdullah, King Abdullah II, uh, and the person who was supposedly uh, kind of at the center of the the coup plot, uh, Prince Hamza. Um, King Abdullah, people are probably familiar with him. Uh, he's been King of Jordan since 1999 after the death of his father, uh, King Hussein. Uh, he's a staunch U.S. ally, um, you know, very close to the, uh, it doesn't seem to matter really uh, who's, in, who's in charge in Washington. He's been a, a reliable U.S. ally. Um, he's sort of uh, close with uh, the Gulf states, although that kind of waxes and wanes a little bit, uh, what what do people need to know about King Abdullah uh, to understand what's happening now, sort of, you know, both in terms of his kind of political agenda and his uh, kind of uh, where Jordan is economically and socially? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, even even probably going back <laughs> before King Abdullah to just a little bit about Jordan itself. So um, Jordan is coming up, I believe this year, it'll be 100 years since the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan was officially established in 1921 um, by the British. And essentially, Jordan was set up... Um, you know, its official title is, is the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And the Hashemites were historically the rulers of the, the Muslim holy cities of Mecca and Medina. They controlled the Hejaz, the sort of portion of what is now Saudi Arabia that is along the Red Sea, where every year um, Muslim pilgrims came to, to visit the holy cities, either for Hajj, um, during during the the period of the year uh, when you can do that, or but, but people would come and continue to come throughout the year for Umrah, which is if you visit Mecca, um, and it's not sort of during the Hajj period, and it, you know it's still um, you know considered necessary as a Muslim to to do this at least once in one's life, and so historically the the Hashemites. Um, ruled over this territory, and once the Ottomans extended control. They technically the the Ottomans were were in charge. I mean, they they let the Hashemites stay in place in part because of their religious legitimacy that they are descended from the Prophet Muhammad, so they they have the the status of um, the Sharif, um, these sort of noble descendants of the Prophet, and 
essentially what um, in sort of in the context of World War One, as the British were fighting the Ottoman Empire, this gets into some fun history, people familiar with Lawrence of Arabia and sort of um, the, the historical figure Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence did in fact um, develop relations with the Hashemite family uh, and, and procuring their assistance in, in rebelling against the Ottoman Empire. And so in 1914, I believe we had the Great Arab Revolt, um, which was the, the assertion by the Hashemites and by their tribal allies that um, the Ottomans should not be in control of Arab territory and specifically the, the holy cities. Um, but but all of the the Hejaz and so in the mind of the the Hashemites they believe that by allying with the British which at the time was you know the world's most powerful empire that they were going to um, that the British were going to help them set up this this sort of single Arab state that the Hashemites would rule on the basis of their religious legitimacy and. And that's not what ended up happening. Instead, we got the Sykes-Picot <laughs> <laughs> um, Sykes agreement where Britain and France sort of divided up what was left of the Ottoman Empire at that point between them, which, you know, then at that point we saw sort of Lebanon carve, well, set up with its sort of odd uh, sharing of powers that it is still struggling with. We saw Jordan being established. We saw the um, New Palestine being established. And then later, obviously, the state of Israel, though. Um, probably won't have time to get into. <laughs> <too many> details, like, <laughs> that's that's that. another episode. That's yeah. a whole other episode. Um, but so, but the point was, and so, and, and simultaneous to all this, we also had the the Al Saud um, having having made several attempts over kind of the the previous decades to to take control of what is what is now Saudi Arabia, um, and they successfully pushed the Hashemites out of of their historical land in the Hejaz. And so, so the, the, the leader of the Hashemites um, had originally sort of thought that by allying with the British, he'd be setting himself up for success as the leader of this, this new sort of great Arab state. Um, but instead, the Brits and the French took over a territory he thought of as rightfully his, and the Saudis took um, a bunch of the rest. And so instead- It backfired a little, yeah. It backfired a little. And, you know, I mean, you this is part of why you still hear Sykes-Picot come up as, as a source of frustration um, for many Arabs and, and people in the Middle East seeing this as, as just the, the perfidy of the British Empire and, and Europeans in general. Um, and so we instead the British set up the Hashemites on the thrones of Iraq and Jordan. And um, the, uh, the revolution in the mid 1950s in Iraq um, ended very badly for the Hashemites. They were <laughs> thrown and killed, um, but they have managed to hang on to power in Jordan. And so I, I provide all of this backstory to to help to set up why it is that King Abdullah feels potentially. Um, at risk, and it is partly because the Hashemites themselves are not from Jordan, and you know, so obviously in the modern era, we increasingly saw the notion of sort of self-rule that that people, you know, one's rulers should be from <laughs> the same place that the population is from, and you know, should be of of a of that 
of often sort of the core ethnic group, if, if there is such a thing. And that that varies by country. But but just the point being that the Hashemites are not from Jordan. And so when they were set up there, there were a lot of existing family. You know, I mean, Jordan is an arid um part of the world. And historically, obviously, we have um, grand sites like Petra that demonstrate that clearly this was a, a center of civilization. We have old Roman sites there. We have plenty of archaeological evidence um, that, that clearly this was not just a desert wasteland, but um, it was Jordan does not itself possess sort of a historical capital. It was never a center of its own empire, the way that, you know, Baghdad has been the center of empires and Cairo has been the center of empires. Um, Jordan, you know, was, was often sort of controlled by other large powers. And so when it was carved out, you essentially had the Hashemites, who, again, saw themselves as uh, you know, rightfully should have been controlling all the land. Um, I think the, the phrase was from Aden to Aleppo. I mean, essentially, you know, the, the entire Arabian Peninsula and extending nearly to the Mediterranean. Um, and instead they, they get this sort of arid little corner uh, and <laughs> they, <laughs> they have to just kind of make the best of it. And so, you know, for the first portion of Jordan's history, they are, they are heavily dependent on the British um, and then once sort of the, the Brits uh, withdraw from the Middle East and sort of leave the, the status of regional milita military hegemon to the Americans, the, the Jordanians are then dependent on the Americans to, to help provide um, military support. Jordan is very heavily dependent on aid. Um, and so this is why, as, especially in sort of more recent history, we see Jordan being very careful to, to act in ways that reflect the agendas of its protectors. And so in, in again, in, in recent history, this has been the United States. This is why Jordan, although it, it initially was, was somewhat appalled at the notion of the, the Americans invading Iraq, they did ultimately provide support for that. Um, and have generally been quite quite supportive of of the American agenda. And a little later, I'll go into not only sort of the military agenda, but also this sort of notion of moderate Islam, which is where a lot of my research focuses. So, so all that to say that um, the basis of the Hashemites' rule in Jordan is sort of extends back to to religious legitimacy which which is still there but but that that was not in fact why they were necessarily set up um, on on this throne by the British and they have always since since being set up they have been in this sort of awkward position where they're supposed to be the first among equals among the other sort of powerful East Bank tribes. Um, that historically ruled the territory of what is now Jordan. The other huge issue for Jordan, um, and we may need to get into some history of Israel here, uh, is the Palestine question that um, when Jordan was first established, they, they did control the West Bank. Um, and it was only in 1967 when Israel seized control of the West Bank in, in the 
again, this is probably too much for this episode, um, but to get into all that, (laughs) essentially Jordan, Jordan lost control of the West Bank. And as a result, um, Israel uh, expelled huge numbers of of Palestinians who who lived in the West Bank. um, And, and Jordan took many, many of them as refugees. But because Jordan for for years, uh, for decades, maintained its claim to the West Bank, it did not actually work to integrate these Palestinians as Jordanians. They wanted to sort of maintain in, in the eyes of the international community that, that these were refugees and that they had the right of return and that, you know, is, that this action by Israel was illegitimate. And, and so if Jordan had merely sort of said, okay, well, you're all, you're all Jordanians now and we're just going to sort of, you know, treat you as if you were Jordanian, that would, you know, the Palestinians themselves didn't necessarily want that because they also wanted to go back to to the territory that they had been expelled from. So it just leads to this this awkward (laughs) position whereby actually more people in Jordan, and now there have been waves of refugees, and so Sometimes the, the numbers themselves get really muddy, but but the point is that there are more Palestinian Palestinian Jordanians, as they're sometimes called in English, than Jordanian Jordanians, or more East Bankers, uh, referring to to. <laughs> uh, well, there are more West Bankers, referring to people from the West and East Bank, Bankers, and right? And East Bankers. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think to to sort of connect those two points, I mean, you, you, it's not only are the Hashemites not of the place that they're ruling, it's not entirely clear what that place is like there are so many palestinians uh that there's really it's it's hard to um and and i mean that's that tension has has flared up multiple times i mean the uh the black september incident and and you know we've seen uh other instances where you know sort of uh the jordanian monarchy is kind of pulled in two directions but it's it's very i think uh, you know, to your point, it's it's a it's not a stable kind of sense of legitimacy, basically. Exactly. exactly. Yes. Yes. And and the and so to get all the way back to to current events, um, I do think one one thing that is interesting about this tension between King Abdullah II and his half brother Prince Hamza does get to this question of Palestine and and Palestinians. So 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 not only are the Hashemites in an awkward, you know, their their legitimacy is is on somewhat shaky ground, um, but Abdullah himself has struggled with this because he his what his mother um, was British and so his Arabic <laughs> was not terribly strong when he <laughs> came to the throne. Um, it's, it's gotten better, but, you know, I, I think it's, um, it, Arabic is a very difficult language as I, I can uh, yeah, Yes, I can, I can, uh, <laughs> I will confirm that. Um, and so it, it has gotten better, but, you know, many Jordanians remember when he first came to the throne, um, and he, you know, physically he he looks somewhat pale, um, and he didn't necessarily look quite um, like what what they imagined their their kings would look like. Whereas in contrast, um, Prince Hamza very closely resembles his father, King Hussein, um, who tended to to like to wear the the Jordanian headdress and. Um, so, so some of that gets to this question of, of Abdullah's legitimacy, even, even as an Arab. 
But then back to the Palestinian question, Abdullah married um, Queen Rania, who many people I believe are familiar with. She's very beautiful and glamorous and has a huge social media following and, and in general you know, is, is sort of a, a figure of admiration. Um, but for, for many um, East Bank Jordanians in particular, they see she, she is of, of you know, her family is of Palestinian origin and they see King Abdullah as somewhat captured by Palestinian interests, um, partly as a result of, of his marriage to Rania. Um, in contrast, Prince Hamza is seen as, or, or he has, uh, cultivated close ties with a lot of these powerful um, East Bank tribes, and they see him as, as more sort of loyal to Jordanian Jordanians. And, and so that's part of, again, not, not to say necessarily that, um, I, I don't know what exactly precipitated these allegations of, of, uh, of an attempted coup. Um, you know, it, this kind of remains the question of was there anything or was it, we can, we can get into that. But the point is um, Prince Hamza is, is liked by individuals who are somewhat frustrated by what they see as the, the sort of control of Jordan and Jordanian politics by, by West bankers, by sort of Jordanians originally of, of Palestinian origin. And you tend to see those, um, the sectors really break down along those sort of East Bank, West Bank lines as well. So the military, for example, does tend to be controlled by, by the East bankers, by sort of Jordanian Jordanians. Um, whereas in contrast, a lot of a lot more sort of business um, and sometimes cultural production uh, is is seen often as somewhat more captured by by West Bank Jordanians. Um, so, so to to get to the question of what exactly happened with this so-called coup attempt, um, so based on on what I've seen and what I wrote. It seems like what may have happened, so, so again, we've, we've established that Abdullah is on somewhat shaky ground, the Hashemites themselves are on somewhat shaky ground, um, and this has gotten worse over the past year. Jordan um, has, has always been in a somewhat tenuous position economically. Um, they don't, again, as I said, it's a very arid country. They have to import um, a lot of food, and then because Jordan some maintains its um, sort of the Jordanian economy to a certain extent functions on the basis of receiving support because Jordan because Jordan accepts so many refugees, so not only Palestinians but then Iraqis and then Syrians, um, Yemenis, Libyans. Uh, it is it is Jordan describes itself as sort of a homeland for the Arabs. Um, which can also then get to this awkward question of, okay, well, well so what exactly is the national identity then? Um, and, and as a result, sort of accepts many of these refugees, um, but, but that does make it very difficult uh, for them economically. And, and they do continue to rely pretty heavily on external support. Um, so just over the past year with COVID, obviously, you know, economies all over the world have been struggling economically. Um, obviously, the pandemic itself being a, a huge source of struggle. Um, in Jordan, there was a, a major scandal when uh, 
a, a large number of patients at a hospital died because they were there was not enough oxygen for them, and this was just seen as reflecting sort of general ineptitude, um, which which just reiterated this perception of um, just sort of government dysfunction and corruption um, that that many Jordanians find understandably very frustrating. Um, so essentially, what it looks like what may have happened is that the Jordanian government may have wanted to arrest Bassam Awadallah, make sure I have his name right, um, and who, who is um, often sort of, has historically been something of a fall guy for King Abdullah, um, that instead of blaming the king himself for, for unpopular policies or for, uh, mistakes that may be made um, that this um, Bassam Awadala is is sort of the fall guy that he'll be blamed. He he was a, a confidant of King Abdullah, who then became the minister of finance during the Arab Spring protests. Um, protesters were were demanding he be removed, um, which from the king's perspective is preferable to having protesters shout that they want the king to be removed. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's good to have a, a scapegoat. It's nice to have somebody you can rely on to take the take the fall, right? <laughs> exactly. And and a lot of, you know, the monarchs throughout the region tend to rely on this. They sort of, you know, portray themselves as above politics, even though in, in pretty much all of these cases, you know, the, the, the king is the one who does make the final decisions. Um, but you know they'll do they'll you know Jordan often you'll go through Parliament reshuffles, um, you know sacking the Prime Minister or just uh, removing him from power and bringing in somebody new, um, and and this is done largely to try to appease the Jordanian populace. Um, but but you know everybody understands that actually it is the King is the one running the show. Um, one one so, thing I don't I I'm, I don't want to get you off track, but I did want to ask, you mentioned the Arab Spring and, and I wanted to jump in and, and sort of yes. uh, note that Abdullah uh, was, Abdullah's response to the Arab Spring relative to, you know, most other uh, Arab leaders, at least the ones who kind of survived it, uh, was relatively kind of acquiescent. I mean, he, he did kind of institute some uh, reforms, some democratic reforms to, to you know, appease the, the demands of the protesters. Um, uh, I wonder, I mean, I, I've seen hints of Prince Hamza having a reputation as sort of being more in favor of kind of opening up politics. And I, I, I wonder if you have any um, kind of thoughts on, for the average Jordanian who's not necessarily kind of thinking about things in the uh, uh, at, at a high political level, but is worried about like civil rights or, or sort, of, sort of political uh, rights. Is there any uh, distinguishing between these two men or is it, is it sort of, uh, uh, is that sort of not an issue? So there, there's definitely a perception that Prince Hamza is more in favor of democratic reform. Um, but, but I do think in that case, it is, it's sort of interesting to keep in mind that there was a perception that 
Crown Prince Abdullah was going to be more in favor of democratic reform. And to clarify, he was Crown Prince only very briefly. Right, uh, right. Just like three weeks before his his father died. Exactly. Uh, And so so that's sort of an interesting story in itself. um, But we can come back to that. But but yeah, so at the time that that Abdullah took power was around the same time that Mohammed VI took power um, from his father, King Hassan in Morocco, um, and around the same time that Bashar al-Assad took over from Hafez al-Assad. So that, that's not a monarchy, but it did function as one um, to the extent that the, the son just took over from his father in Syria. Um, and so all three of these uh, relatively young men at the time and around the year 2000 were seen as, you know, in favor of democratic reform that, you know, their fathers had all demonstrated that they were um, pretty hard-nosed and uh, ready to crack down on protests. And and so the, these young um, princes um, as, and, and Bashar al-Assad <laughs> um, were seen as potentially being more in favor of democracy. And and so I think to a certain extent, this notion that Prince Hamza would also be more in favor of democracy is, is a little bit similar to this, to this same dynamic where, yeah, it's easy when you're not in power to say nice things about democratic reform. Um, but then when you're actually the one in charge and you realize <laughs> yes, what it would, yeah. what it would okay. mean, um, you know, to lose your own power. And, and, and again, I mean, in the Middle East, we see what happens when people lose power. I mean, like what happened to Gaddafi? What happened to Saddam Hussein? Like what happened to President Saleh of Yemen? Like these people all died after they were removed from power, <laughs> often violently. Um, and so in many cases, I mean, especially in the case of, of Syria, I think Bashar al-Assad, part of why we saw the horrifying levels of brutality uh, that he exercised to stay in power is because he he knew what would happen if he were removed from power. Um, so so again, I, I I think the notion that Prince Hamza would would be in favor of more democracy is sort of ignoring the fact that he he's he's also a member of the Hashemite family, right. um, and he would be you know he would have come to power through a non democratic process you know as a result of being the son of the previous or the the king two kings ago um and you know, why would he necessarily be interested in democracy once he had the reins of power himself um that's not to say i mean monarchs do rescind power over time but it's usually not the result of their own choices it's usually because they were constrained um by institutions you know sometimes it has to do with sort of economic processes and we look at sort of the some of these classic European examples where you know it took centuries to kind of wrest power slowly away from those monarchs um and 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 so the the notion that um this would that Prince Hamza would be in favor of this I think may be a certain amount of wishful thinking sort of romanticized but uh, but yeah. I think the the point that I think is emerging is that um, whether or not and uh, you know we'll we'll kind of jump into uh, what happened over the weekend now but whatever happened there are some reasons why King Abdullah could potentially be worried about 
Prince Hamza. He, he's popular yeah. with Jordanian Jordanians. He maybe has a reputation as being like the cool, he's like the cool uncle who wants to, you know, give you some treats and, uh, yeah. you know, doesn't really have to take any responsibility. So he gets to be a, you know, a play act as a democratic reformer. And so there are, there, there are reasons why he could be viewed as a potential problem. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So now, you know, we get into, uh, you know, the, the arrest of several, uh, figures with some, uh, ties to the, the government or, you know, former senior, uh, members of the government. You mentioned, uh, Basim Awadallah, uh, and Prince Hamza releases this, uh, kind of recorded this video recording to the BBC. I don't know how he got it out, but uh, you know, saying I'm under house arrest and uh, you know, I've been, I've been detained and, and the Jordanian government starts talking about uh, this coup attempt. Uh, what do we know for sure versus kind of what uh, is kind of been built up in the, the official narrative that's a little bit shady? Yes, so what we know for sure was that these two sort of high level figures, Basim Awadallah and Sharif Hassan bin Zaid, who is himself a member of the royal family, um, they were both detained as well as, I, we, I've heard different numbers, I've heard 17 individuals total were detained, I've heard 18, um, but a number of individuals were, were detained as well, some of whom were members of the Majali, tribe who have historically, who, who are a powerful East Bank tribe who've historically um, been somewhat critical of Abdullah and corruption, etc. Um, and so what, what I suspect happened was um, given that Abdullah has been dealing with massive protests um, just about, about COVID and restrictions and lack of economic opportunity and um, just, just, you know, think, things are feeling somewhat um, fragile in Jordan at the moment. My read is that he wanted, King Abdullah wanted to arrest Basim Awadallah, who has long been his fall guy, because that would appease Jordanians. They'd say, ah, oh, this guy who's been such a source of all this trouble is finally arrested. And now things can get better, inshallah. Um, and you know, then it would take them a little while to realize, like, oh wait, nothing's getting better. Um, <laughs> or that was the hope. <laughs> and 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 my my assumption is that because Prince Hamza was was close to these individuals as well as members of the Majali tribe and perhaps some of the other people who were arrested, that the security services decided to preemptively go to his house, just keep him quiet, just kind of let him know like, hey, some stuff's going down. We don't want you to, to say anything about it. And instead of doing that, he, you know, before he loses all sorts of, all forms of communication, he manages to, to record this video and send it to his lawyer who then released it to the BBC um, where he, he says very clearly that, look, this is going to be portrayed as the work of foreign agents. It's not, they're gonna try to tie me to foreign agents. I'm not, I'm just trying to express my frustration. And he does not name the king, but he does use, you know, he says in English, uh, corruption, he says misrule. Um, and 
essentially this this escalates things that you know king abdullah thought that he was going to be able to sort of keep all this sort of pull off this something of a pr stunt by arresting um these other individuals and then in a couple days maybe he'd he'd let prince hamza go about his normal life um and instead prince hamza doesn't let that happen and so suddenly now the jordanian crown is in this awkward position where they have to make allegations of a coup attempt in order to to sort of justify why they put prince hamza under house arrest and why they were arresting these other individuals um the other, the only other thing we know that has gotten somewhat um, inflated or, or sort of bound up in the government narrative was that apparently this um, individual who, who is Israeli, who lives in Europe, he was contacted by Prince Hamza as Prince Hamza realized all of this was starting to go down to let him know what was going on. And this Israeli individual offered for Prince Hamza's wife and kids to, to get out of Jordan and stay with him. Um, the Jordanian government then portrayed this as he's a former Mossad agent, this means Israel is right. involved. You know, the, this is clear evidence of the involvement of, of malign foreign actors, da 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 da, da. When to, to, as far as as far as we can tell, it seems that it was just a, a family friend offering to, to provide somewhere um, for his wife and kids to go that they, you know, to prevent them from also being placed either under house arrest or potentially under, you know, in, in detention facilities. Um, so in general, as, as Prince Hamza said in his statement, Jordan and, and many countries do this, they'll, they'll point the finger at the involvement of these sort of malign foreign actors. Um, and there were rumors going around about the possibility that the UAE is involved, and I'm happy to get into those, can unpack kind of some of that if you want. Um, but, but in general, I, I see this as, as sort of what was supposed to be a little, a little PR stunt for the Jordanian regime suddenly uh, got, got escalated <laughs> significantly by Prince Hamza, and then they themselves had to escalate. They had to escalate, okay. And then- Yeah, and that, that makes sense. And then at that point, they, you know, we, we then saw Prince Hamza meeting with um, his uncle, um, former Crown Prince Hassan, who then um, got him to acquiesce to sign this statement affirming his loyalty, you know, that, that he, he is loyal to the king and, you know, agrees to sort of maintain, you know, for, for the interests of Jordan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they, he was re reasserting his support um, and, and that, you know, I, I don't know what necessarily they threatened him with to get him to, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, given the treatment that we've seen of other Royal family members in places like Saudi Arabia and Dubai, um, you know, I, I think things could have, have gotten pretty hairy for, for Prince Hamza if he didn't fold so so that's what we know i i yeah i i think i mean that's that makes a lot of sense i think that 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 makes a uh that really seems like 
the most plausible kind of scenario here that that it was the the recording getting to the BBC that kind of threw the Jordanians off balance. Um, I I do uh, want to talk about the idea of foreign involvement. I think to to sort of bring it all up to where we are now, there was this statement, as you said, this letter that that Hamza supposedly signed, reaffirming his uh, loyalty to the current Jordanian regime, yada, yada. Uh, um, And then um, yesterday there was a report of another like audio recording that was released that uh, was supposedly of the argument that Hamza was having with his, uh, uh, I think the the chief of staff, the Jordanian military, military chief of staff who had come to, to his residence to kind of, you know, say, Hey, uh, you're, you're going to stay here for a few days. And there was nothing in there about foreign involvement. And that kind of, you know, undercut this story of, you know, some nefarious undefined foreign government getting involved. Uh, And then all of a sudden uh, the Jordanian government imposed a media gag over over the whole thing. Nobody's allowed Mm -hmm. to talk about it anymore. Uh, Now today there's been this sort of full court press, the uh, deputy prime minister and King Abdullah himself, uh, have made statements about, you know, it's this is over, it's all done, the threat has passed. And uh, it really does seem like they're trying to kind of regain uh, what they were initially intending to do to sort of sideline Hamza for a few days and then uh, let everything kind of try to go back to normal. Um, I, I think uh, to put, I, I want to put the, the, the question of, whether this idea of foreign involvement makes any sense at all, uh, you know, a a little bit later when we talk about sort of the regional uh, implications. But uh, the first thing that uh, I sort of wanted to to talk about, and this gets in somewhat to your piece and some of the things uh, we've already been talking about is, is the narrative of Jordan as this kind of island of stability in a sea of instability. Uh, in the Middle East. Um, you know, there have been several pieces, you know, written in, in Western press that that many of them kind of make reference to this idea that Jordan is is very reliable. And and that's a uh, that's true uh, to an extent, it seems like, you know, if your interest is in, uh, you know, which, you know, a government that's going to reliably kind of follow the the U.S. line or kind of, you know, going to sort of be there to uh, to to backstop things, you know, with Israel-Palestine. And then that uh, there is a sense that the Jordan is reliable. I mean, they've had only had two kings in, in the last almost 70 years. So there's not a lot of turnover at the very top. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, you've gotten in already to sort of the the, the tenuous nature of the Hashemite of Hashemite legitimacy. Uh, and you can see kind of under the surface, I mean, this country goes through prime ministers like, you know, one or two a year. There's protests over uh, the weak economy. There are, uh, you know, it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to regional shocks. You, you've talked about it's uh, the fact that the Jordan, you know, the Jordanian government takes in a lot of refugees that makes it vulnerable when there you know, are situations creating those refugees. It's very vulnerable to any kind of crisis in Israel-Palestine. Uh, what, what is this sort of 
reality versus the the kind of legend of Jordanian stability? Yeah, so I it's I think it's it's super interesting um, to to think about the the way that things shifted recently. So essentially for a long time, given you know that that America is kind of Jordan's primary security partner and, and Jordan, as I said, is careful to act in ways that that help to affirm that. Um, and what one of the, the most prominent examples of this was the 1994 um, Camp David Accords where Jordan and Israel, you know, agreed to, to a peace treaty. Um, and this was only the second country to do so after Egypt um, in 1979 under King said, or King President Sadat um, also signed a peace treaty with Israel. And he, President Sadat was assassinated as a result of that. Um, and there was an assassination attempt on King Hussein as a result of, of his uh, signing a peace treaty. Um, and we know that Yitzhak Rabin was himself assassinated as a result um, of, of his signing the peace treaty uh, with, with Jordan. Um, so, so at the time, it, it, was, it was really costly for these countries to, to go against the wishes, the, the very strong wishes of their population and sign peace treaties with, with Israel, but it did cement their status as these crucial security partners of the United States in the region. So, you know, Israel continues to receive $1.3 billion a year from the United States in military assistance. But after that, the second highest is, is Egypt. Or maybe, oh, I think I got it wrong. I think it's Egypt receives $1.3 billion a year um, from the United States. Israel receives more than that. Jordan receives somewhat less. Um, but, it, but that has been, those have been the, the three largest recipients of military aid um, for decades. And so Jordan for, for a very long time could count on the fact that the U.S. had very few other such staunch partners in the region that, that had signed peace treaties with Israel. And so when the UAE signed the Abraham Accords last year in August of 2020 that normalized relations with Israel, and then subsequently saw Bahrain also signing, we then saw Sudan normalizing, we saw Morocco normalizing, um, suddenly Jordan is no longer quite so important. And, and this puts Jordan in, in kind of this awkward position um, where it can't necessarily count on the fat, on its sort of unique status in the region. And uh, in addition to that, um, obviously the, the question of Palestine remains very salient uh, for, for all Jordanians, especially you know, some, somewhat more salient for Jordanians of Palestinian origin, but also also for all Jordanians. Um, and so the extent to which the Trump administration sort of actively tried to torpedo the any kind of peace process, you know, and, and just essentially giving a green light um, to Israel to potentially annex um, all of the, the West Bank possibly, you know, the, the Abraham Accords stated the agreement was that the UAE agreed to normalize with Israel if they didn't do that, but in the you know in the Israeli version, it said they were only sort of pausing that. Just action. delaying, right? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> so again, it's this notion that the Abraham Accords sort of 
achieved peace were sort of like, well, they weren't, they weren't fighting to begin with, and it didn't actually resolve anything about the Palestinian question. It just sort of acknowledged in the open what had long been uh, sort of a quiet fact, which was that Israel does have functional relationships with, with especially the, the Gulf countries. Um, so Does, did Trump's, I don't want to, uh, just to interject, did, yeah. did, did Trump's decision to uh, zero out, which is a decision the Biden administration just today announced they're reversing, but to sort of zero out U.S. aid to, to Palestinian, like to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency, for example, um, did, did that play any, did that, what kind of impact did that have uh, on Jordan? I mean, I, I don't I don't know off the top of my head whether that led to a direct cut for Jordan. I think that was more about, you know, finance for uh, for individuals in Palestine. But I could be okay. wrong. It, it's very possible that that those kinds. I mean, I, I my hunch is that probably, yes, in it, whether it was that or some other action that the Trump administration took. I imagine resources to Jordan were cut because that that was his MO in general, um, especially to Palestinians, but also just to sort of aid uh, resources in general. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, so not only coming off the Trump administration, um, which, you know, was, was not particularly interested in Jordan, I mean, King Abdullah, you know, regardless of whether you sort of buy into the notion that he is particularly sympathetic to the Palestinian cause because of his wife or whatever, or he's just, you know, this this is an ongoing um, question for sort of anyone who rules Jordan is going to have to, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about this this question of Palestine and, and what's going to happen there. Um, that, you know, the actions of the Trump administration Jordan saw as as potentially um, a, a huge source of destabilization, um, especially if if Israel had gone forward um, and and annexed the West Bank and, and ostensibly then pushed all all the individuals living there, you know, probably would have tried to to push them to Jordan, um, if not elsewhere. So so in general, I I imagine King Abdullah was not sorry to see Trump go um and and thus far you know as you said you know biden has has been bringing some of these these resources for palestinians back online and in general you know biden is kind of a a pre-trump status quo u.s foreign policy like let's just get back to how things used to be um which from jordan's perspective that sounds great because you know jordan did quite well um under the well, quite well. Jordan, <laughs> Jordan preferred. They, they weren't, them. yeah, they weren't suffering under the right, status quo. They well, weren't yeah. suffering and they could count on American support. Um, and, you know, for example, when the, there were, when, when I was doing field work in Jordan, this was primarily uh, in 2015, when there were a lot of concerns about the Islamic state, you know, I was living with a family and the the mom would say things like, "They're you know they're gonna Daesh is going to march into Amman tomorrow." Like it, it was it was it felt very present just over the border with Syria, and a lot of people were were really worried. Um, but at the same time, there was this sense that the Americans were never going to let that happen. Um, and I I suspect under Trump, there may have been sort of a question of like, well, <laughs> what would he? <laughs> 
what necessarily can we count on from this guy? Right. Um, so again, I, I think you know Biden has has around the world um, tried to reassure allies and security partners, um, which on the one hand, you know it is it is important for the U.S. to have allies. On the other hand, I do think the U.S. needs to fully reevaluate its relationship to the Middle East, and that we shouldn't be propping up authoritarian regimes. Um, and can, can they, continuing to sell them huge amounts of weapons and, and military aid, or, or you know, just giving them huge amounts of military aid. Um, and that you know, Biden really should be pressuring countries like Jordan that, that remain quite dependent on the United States. Um, not, not that you know the U.S. should ever engage in anything like regime change or, or interfere in these countries' sovereignty, but but the U.S. should make it very clear that human rights, you know, these these really um, awful human rights abuses, especially that we see in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, um, that this is unacceptable. And what I fear is that now in Jordan, which again historically. Yes, there there have been there's there's been plenty of repression. This is not a democratic country, but it, it was not on the level of places like um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, even the UAE, um, where you really see really kind of horrifying treatment of dissidents. Um, and what I worry about is that now, because King Abdullah feels concerned, he, he this was about sending a message that he is not going to tolerate critique from anyone, not even his own half brother, and that moving forward, uh, the parallel I made in 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 my piece, and I think when I spoke to the BBC, was the the alleged coup attempt in Turkey in the summer of 2016. That right, almost coming up on the the fifth anniversary of that momentous, right, and that event. and that you know it may be similar where it's never quite clear what exactly happened there. Um, right. I'm not an expert in, in Turkish affairs, so I don't know if there's if there's like been more clarity there, but my sense of it was it's not quite clear what precipitated the allegations of a coup attempt. But regardless, the important thing is afterwards Erdogan used that um, to justify this, this huge level of repression against journalists and academics and just ordinary people um, who would criticize his rule or, or um, his actions. And so I worry that, you know, Erdogan himself had come to power by democratic means and was seen as something of a reformer, you know, sort of committed to democracy and taking power away from the Turkish military, which had historically been so powerful. And so that Abdullah as well had sort of historically been seen as, you know, maybe willing to, to open up, as you said, um, made, made some gestures towards reforms after the Arab Spring, but that in both, in both Turkey and Jordan, this alleged coup attempt can then be used to justify all kinds of repression. Um, and so that's that's why to go back to to Biden. I mean, Jordan has seen King Abdullah has seen uh, that the Americans and Biden in particular don't say anything, and certainly not Trump, uh, don't say anything about abusing, murdering one's own citizens. Um, that the U.S. continues to sell weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, why should Abdullah have any notion that the U.S. would would um, withdraw support or condemn him if he does decide that that he's going to go ahead and, and really significantly crack down on dissent. Right. And if I mean, if you use Turkey as the sort of 
example, the case in point here. I mean, that's that's a process that could go on for years. Uh, just today, I think, uh, you know, there were life life sentences given to uh, a couple dozen people who were allegedly involved in the coup. Uh, and the, I mean, these were, you know, soldiers who probably were to the extent that there was a, a real coup attempt. They, they probably were. Uh, involved in it. So, um, you know, it's not quite what you're talking about in terms of suppressing uh, dissent, but that still goes on. I mean, you know, Erdogan has built an entire uh, kind of illiberal superstructure now over uh, the repercussions of that coup attempt and, and what it allowed him to do domestically. So, yeah, I mean, if that's the direction that this heads, it's it's something that could take years to, to fully uh, manifest. Yes. Yes. And, and in the case of Jordan, I mean, this is not the first time. So for example, in my research, I was looking in particular um, at sort of relations with Islamist groups and the way the government uses religious discourse to sort of legitimize itself. And in Jordan, historically, the Muslim Brotherhood um, was seen as the loyal opposition that, that um they would not call for for anything resembling the the overthrow of the monarchy, but they, you know, they wanted a larger role for Islam in public life and they wanted more democracy. And that under King Hussein, they they were sort of tolerated and, you know, Jordan's um, the levels of, uh, you know, some sometimes parliament just gets dissolved sometimes. I mean, again, this is not a democracy, Um, but sort of over, (laughs) over time, um, you saw the Muslim Brotherhood being able to field candidates through the uh, the Islamic Action Front was the, their political wing, and and under um, under King Abdullah they they have sort of they're no longer seen as kind of a legitimate political movement. And my my research looked especially at sort of this notion of moderation that kind of they were seen as like moderates under King but under um, King Hussein. Whereas now under King Abdullah, they they have been targeted with repression. They were um, they were split up essentially. They've now, as of last year, declared a non-entity essentially that they don't exist anymore. Even though the members say, "Yes, we do. We're here." Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but just and I mean this is part of a much broader um, shift throughout the region and especially following the Arab Spring where Islamists who were once seen as not all that politically threatening, um, you know, obviously in, in Egypt, they, they took power in Tunisia, they took power and, and suddenly regimes around the region feared the possibility that, that Islamists might um, seize power in their own countries as well. And so groups like the Brotherhood that were once tolerated are now seen as, as a, a much more significant threat and are no longer tolerated. And, and so in Jordan, we've seen Abdullah cracking down on, on these groups. Um, we've seen just sort of the expansion of, of the Jordanian security state. Um, and again, this is, this is not unique to Jordan. I mean, we saw a lot of this kind of in the post 9-11 context and then especially um, kind of the, the post um, Daesh context. Um, and so especially this expansion of sort of state security over religious spaces, which historically were, were permitted a certain degree of independence because they were seen as politically quietist. And, and that has really shifted um, in the past couple decades. 
um, to kind of bring this uh, for now, at least to, to kind of bring us to the, the end here, I, I wonder um, if you could expand a little more on the, the, the regional angle, um, you know, talk about what, if any basis there is for the claim that a, a foreign government, whether it's Israel or the UAE or Saudi Arabia might have designs on ousting King Abdullah. I'll be honest, that's, that doesn't make any sense to me because I mean, I, I could see, you know, obviously there's, there's been some tension between Abdullah and the Gulf States over Iran, for example, um, and, and his sort of, or, or, you know, more, or even over Qatar as well, his sort of unwillingness to kind of uh, you know, take the Saudi line on those issues. Um, and yet, I, I don't know why any of these governments would necessarily prefer Hamza uh, over Abdullah, who, again, has been relatively reliable for them in terms of geopolitics. Uh, but what what's the kind of regional context of this? And, and you know, do you see any basis for, for thinking that that uh, he might be in danger of foreign uh, kind of shenanigans. Yeah. So initially, when people heard there was foreign involvement, a lot of people's minds went to the UAE, um, that the UAE has been either um, involved in kind of efforts. And, you know, a, a lot of this gets back to the fact that kind of after the Arab Spring, you had various countries imploding around the region. So Yemen and Libya and Syria and, and a lot of countries being involved, you know, UAE and, and Egypt and Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United States, um, all, all sort of backing different groups on the ground. And so, so not to say um, that the UAE is alone in this sort of behavior of, of trying to sort of involve itself in the internal affairs of other countries. Um, but it was interesting to see the UAE as, as sort of the prime suspect here. Um, if, if there were anything to this, which I doubt, um, it would be perhaps related to the fact that um, Abdullah is seen as potentially too in favor of Palestinian interests and that perhaps Prince Hamza might be more amenable to some kind of grand bargain whereby, you know, this, this sort of emerging coalition of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Egypt to a certain extent and Bahrain to a certain extent, um, that, you know, this is sort of the anti-Iran coalition and they might, they might see um, Prince Hamza as being more willing to sort of go along with them in that, uh, security sort of defense alignment moving forward against Iran. However, in general, the as I, I said said this uh, in an interview, the, that the the monarchs are all on the same side, and that is their own side. So the monarchs don't want to see any of, of their own monarch, their, their fellow kings overthrown because, you know, what we saw coming out of the Arab Spring was it was Republican governments tended to fall and the monarchies managed to muddle through. And so if we now saw something 
um, whereby a, a king was overthrown, even if he was then replaced by a, you know another member of his of his um, sort of family of, of the Hashemite dynasty, that that could give ideas to people who maybe aren't so satisfied with how things are going in Saudi Arabia, for example, or in the UAE. Um, and so these these monarchs would really prefer not to establish that precedent. <laughs> um, so I, in general, I don't see Jordan having enough power to prevent the UAE from from any of the, the sort of regional machinations it is engaged in in, in sort of coalescing um, this coalition against Iran. And, and I mean, to, to a certain extent, I mean, the UAE actually had, and, and especially Dubai, has a, a relatively functional relationship with Iran. So this kind of um, gets back to some tensions between Dubai, which is, a, you know, the commercial hub and is interested in just, you know, maintaining good relations and avoiding conflict, as opposed to Abu Dhabi, uh, led by Mohammed bin Zayed, who, who has um, more sort of muscular visions for the UAE's role in the future and, 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 is, and is acting on those. Um, and uh, so all that to say, um, I think that is why the UAE was brought up, was named um, as, a, as a possible for an agent involved in this, but in general, I, I, I don't, I would be very, I would be surprised if evidence emerged that that was in fact irrefutably the case. Um, because my, my understanding is that Jordan doesn't provide enough of a problem and, you know, having Abdullah in charge isn't really preventing the UAE from doing what they want to do, uh, or specifically doing, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed from doing what he wants to do. Um, so the notion that he would act in a way that could potentially uh, destabilize other monarchies um, would, would essentially be acting against his own self-interest. Yeah, it's just, there's, there's no, <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. There's just no um, way that that adds up to me. Um, but, you know, who, who am I to say? Maybe we should just take the Jordanian's word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think we we will leave it there. Um, and if there's anything more that comes of this, uh, uh, you know, maybe we could uh, revisit. It sounds like Abdullah is very interested in putting everything, put, putting this all behind us and moving on at this point. So uh, I don't know if anything else is going to come of it, but certainly uh, there are other things we could talk about. We could talk about Prince Hassan and his. Uh, tribulations as crown prince before he got unceremoniously booted out of the job. And there's just many more things that, that this kind of takes you through, but uh, I think we'll, we'll hold off on those things and, and leave it there. And um, Anel, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And, and I think this has been a, a very in, illuminating uh, look at what's going on. Great, great. Well, yes, we'd be happy to come back on. You know, they, they sometimes call it the Hashemite kingdom of boredom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we can but, all I, we can always, you know, move to another country then and talk well, about that. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly, you know, these 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 events demonstrate that is that is not true. Jordan is very interesting. You know, there's there's a lot of fascinating 
regional dynamics that that sort of play out there, as well as a lot of interesting religious dynamics. So would you know would be happy to come back and talk more about Jordan or 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 anything else. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Anel, uh, and uh, take care. Thanks. You too. Once again, I would like to thank Anel Shiline for coming on the program to help us kind of make sense of the past few days uh, in Jordan, uh, to understand the context, and to maybe separate uh, the known knowns from the known unknowns, as Donald Rumsfeld might put it. Uh, so thanks to her. Definitely check her out. I'll put a link to her uh, Quincy article on the show description, but you can find her on Twitter. You can find her uh, doing interviews all over the place and writing in many, many you should definitely uh, check out her work she does uh, a phenomenal job uh, with that uh, I think we're done uh, as always uh, thank you for listening and until next time take care and I'll talk to you soon bye bye